on this episode of What's Mine is Yours. Jada Marcus, at what point did Rascal Flatts feel like a superstar? I, just, I think that it dawned on me we had done something special in 2006 when we were at the Grammys. I never will forget, Gary leaned over to me and said, look at that front row over there. There's Beyonce, there's Jay-Z, there's Elton John, there's Lady Gaga. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. And Madonna was walking in and we're sitting over off kind of the side, second row. And he said, you know what's cool about tonight? And I said, what? He goes, we've sold more records than anybody in this room this year. Wow. So that was what hurts the most. That was you know, oh, that album. Yeah, that my was, wish. That was the life-changing album, wasn't it, it? It was. It started with Broken Road on the album before, mm-hmm. and it sort of just kept going. And then what hurts the most was the first single, Life is a Highway Hit after that. And then My Wish. Yeah. And then Stand. And we, we were in the sweet spot. We were in the nexus. We were right there. And yeah. the, every artist goes through this that's had some degree of success where you kind of get a sweet spot of no matter what you put out, it's going to get played and it's going to find its way to the top of the charts. So the year 2006, we sold more records than anybody in the world. And for a country band to be able to say that was huge. Huge. And that is the time, the first time, because we've been working so hard and so long. That was the time that I stopped and I went, wow, we've really done something here. Good morning. Morning. There's some coffee behind me. Great. Just what I need. What do you want to write today? I did have this one idea. Have you ever heard a song and felt like it was yours? That it was written for you? Me too. And that's why I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to record and sing songs written by people who have written songs you've heard. The songs you have grown to love. The songs you were raised on and the songs that you've attached your stories to. Come along with me as I interview songwriters who write the words that inspire all of us. This is What's Mine is Yours. Our guest today is Jay DeMarcus. Jay was born in Columbus, Ohio. After moving to Nashville in 1993, Jay's career took off being a part of a Christian music group called East to West. After East to West came to an end, Jay became a part of what he is most notably known for, being a member of the country pop group Rascal Flats. Jay now runs a Christian music record label and is currently working with artists such as Chris Lane and Ryan Griffin. I wasn't ready for Jay. I was pulling into my driveway as he was pulling in. I hate doing that. I always like to be prepared for my guests. And I just wasn't expecting him to be like 20 to 30 minutes early. And I actually loved it. And it gave me some time to sit down with him and talk with him. And I loved his spunky attitude. I didn't know what kind of a personality Jay was actually going to have. He had a good amount of sarcasm to him, which I loved. He seemed very attentive. He listened to you. He looked at you and he talked to you. I think out of every guest, trying to be accurate in the sense of how I feel and being very honest, this was the guest I've been most excited for. And not because not every other guest has been absolutely incredible because they have, but it's very personal for me. Rascal Flats and Leanne Rhymes are the two reasons why I got into country music. So I tell Jay, I think I've been to almost every single Rascal Flats show, even their Vegas show, to every tour, pretty much. I can remember exactly where I was and what song I heard first and how old I was when I heard Rascal Flats for the first time. 
It's so vivid. They just mean a lot to me as a group and showing, you know, the pop countryside. I always fell in love with their choices in songs and knowing that a lot of their songs were outside pitches and outside cuts, which is really amazing because that's what I came to Nashville to do. At first, it wasn't all about being a songwriter for me. It was about finding the best songs. And Rascal Flatts knew how to find the best songs. And everything they did sounded so cohesive. It sounded so beautiful. Everything just fit them so well. Probably when they heard a song for the first time, it didn't have at all the sound that you ended up hearing. But that just showed how talented they were, that they were so good at taking a song, hearing the bones of it, and being able to make it a Rascal Flatts song. Jada Marcus, thank you so much for being on What's Mine is Yours. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were born in Columbus, Ohio. I was. Tell me about your childhood, parents. Give me the whole lowdown. I grew up in a really musical family. My mom and dad were both musicians. My mom was actually country music queen of Ohio in 1969. Got a Decca Records recording contract, opened up for Loretta Lynn. Wonderful singer. Wow. And my dad was a working musician, played in local bands, and that's what he did for a living. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, you could work a lot as mm -hmm. a musician, and then they transitioned out and started going to more disco and DJs and things. So in the 80s, it sort of shifted. But point is that in the 70s, you could make a pretty good living as a working musician. My dad had a really great band, and they traveled in the tri-state area, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. Did you travel with them? No, not, not much. I did play a few times with him when I was a kid and the drummer was sick. I filled in, played drums a few times, but I was surrounded by music. My entire family, even my grandparents played music and we would get together as a family on Friday and Saturday nights and sort of just jam and whatever was laying around. You kind of picked it up and tried to figure out how to play something on it, whether it was a banjo or a dobro or a guitar or whatever was laying around. Everybody would just kind of pick it up and jam. So I started like, at a really early age, getting into figuring out how to play different instruments and learning little things here and there and really developed my ear early on when I was a kid. And the greatest gift my dad gave me was forcing me to listen to the radio and play by ear and picking up melodies mm -hmm. and learn how to shape the chords around them and everything. So I was obsessed with music from an early age and it was really all I ever wanted to do. I always get asked, when did you know you wanted to do what you do? And I've never really known anything else. Like mm -hmm. I never considered anything else. It was like music was just there and I knew I had a knack for it. And I just was consumed by it while other kids were outside playing in the summertime and skateboarding or riding bikes or whatever. I was locking myself in my room trying to figure out how to play my favorite records. How many instruments do you know how to play? 147. No, you don't. I'm kidding. I've never really counted them, <laughs> but I'm just one of those people that I can, I've been in the studio and making music for such a long time. Like I can pick up anything and kind of play parts on stuff. Sure. And so I play guitar and I'm a bass player, obviously went to school for keys. So I program a lot. I'm, my first instrument was drums. So I play the meat and potatoes of about everything, guitar so, and bass, drums, keys. You're talking about memories of a first moment, what was like an aha moment for you with music? Yeah. But was there a moment? I think when I went to the Ohio State Fair and I saw Dolly Parton when I was about eight years old, my mom was a huge Dolly fan and I went there and I saw the lights and the, the outfit changes and the show and I saw the band that was 
so tight and the show was just electric. And that's when it kind of struck me like that. I, I think I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like that's what I want to be someday. That's what I want to want to do. I didn't want to be Dolly, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, some young boys do want to be Dolly. Sure. But I grew up new and in that moment really uh, was a watershed moment for me and really cementing the fact that I wanted to be an entertainer when I grew up. And probably the first time it happened for me personally was when I was 10 or 11 years old, I went to see one of my favorite. My mom loved Southern gospel music growing up. So there was a quartet called the Kingsmen that were really, really popular when I was growing up. My mom was friends with the lead singer and told him that I knew one of their songs and then I sang it in church. And in the middle of their show, he called me up. They were singing at the Circleville County Fair. And I went up there and sang the song and got it huge standing ovation. Wow. Then they did the second verse again. I sang the second verse and chorus again and got another standing ovation. I remember going, I need to feel that again. (laughs) I need more of this. So I know we talked before we started recording, but when did you move to Nashville? I moved in 1993. All right. And what was your journey like to get to Nashville? Like, how did you know when you knew I was, I'm moving to Nashville? A car. I'm kidding. Let's see. I didn't really know that I'd moved to Nashville, to be honest, but I was going to school in Cleveland, Tennessee at Lee University. For what? Music. Okay. I got a scholarship for music there. And in order to keep my scholarship, I had to recruit in the summer times with the recruiting ensemble. It was a Christian liberal arts school. So I went to youth camps and winter fests and things like that. And we did uh, camp meetings and would go around and recruit for the school and try to bring kids to the school. So I was studying music and doing my thing. And at the same time, I was writing songs, recording demos and mailing them away to publishing companies here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And my roommate at the time, Neil Coomer was his name. He was also in the group with me, the recruiting ensemble for Lee. We were called New Harvest, but he was singing the demos. So I got a call from Benson Records here in town. It was a Christian label. And they said, what's the name of your band? And I was like, we're not a band. Like, these are my demos and these are the songs that I've been writing. I want to be a producer and a songwriter. And Don Cook, who was a famous Christian producer at that time, produced for him, Al Denson, and was at the top of the charts as a songwriter all the time, said, well, you should think about being a band because I think you really got something unique here. The sound Mm -hmm. is really great. So I talked to my roommate, Neil, who we were already really great friends and dear friends. And we decided to go to Nashville and just see what happens. And so we came over here and cut a couple of demos. And in the middle of the recording of those demos, the A&R guy, Andy Ivy from Benson came down and listened to the rough mixes of the demos. And he was like, let's stop what we're doing and let's go upstairs and start talking about a deal. So we were signed. I was signed my senior year in college. So So you moved directly from senior. Did you go back and graduate and then move to Nashville? Oh. Record deal. Yeah, true. Degree. Yeah. Go back to school anytime. So I, I, yeah, I quit school in the middle, probably the beginning of my senior year, moved to Nashville, did a record. We had pretty good success. We did two records. We were together about four and a half, almost five years, had six number ones. And wow. Yeah. So I've kind of had this is, I'm on like my third career right now running a record label, but I had a Christian record deal for about five years, some good success there few Dove Awards and on some really big tours at the time. It's all in my book, but I went through a series of life-changing events Mm -hmm. that sort of 
ended the Christian career. And so I went through a really dark period for about two to three years there where I was kind of just kind of lost and wondering what was next for me and started networking here in town with some really great musicians and sitting in with people at bars and Mm -hmm. started really to scratch the itch to write more country music because I'd always written country music but didn't have an outlet for it because I was in a Christian band and we were running in CCM circles. So Mm -hmm. I started to really dig into deeper and the side of writing more country music and things just sort of started to turn around for me. So going back to your first year in Nashville, what was your routine like? Who were your mentors? Did you have any? Well, I was gone a lot, so it was hard to like... on the road? Yeah, we were touring constantly. It's really tough to make a living in the CCM market, so Mm -hmm. you have to stay on the road pretty much, you know, 250, 300 days a year, so I was gone a lot, but I had mentors back home, and my pastor back home was somebody that I would lean on a lot when I had things to work through, somebody I needed to bounce Mm -hmm. something off of. My mom was a huge foundation for me. And we always had the kind of relationship, my mother and I, you know, I was her son, but we were really close friends too. And I always leaned on her for everything. And I was an open book with her. There was nothing I couldn't share with her and nothing we couldn't talk about. And so I always felt very comfortable going to her with any problems that I had, no matter how serious they were or how big they were when she was always a great, I don't know, positive influence, but also had this uncanny ability to be very objective and give me great advice. So she was probably my biggest influence in that time of my life when I was young. And then when the Christian deal fell apart, she was the one that forced me to stay here because I wanted to go back home. I thought about moving back home and I was like, I might as well throw in the towel. This is my career I had a shot at, and now it's gone. And she was like, as much as I'd love for you to come back home and have missed the years that you've been gone, I think you got to stay where God's put you because he's not finished with you yet. He mm-hmm. still has plans for you, even though you can't see him or feel them right now. And did he ever? He did. <laughs> and you can't see it when you're living in the middle of it and you've got crap happening that you can't explain. You don't have any answers for and Everything seems like it's falling apart on the surface. Um, But it's really falling into place. It is. And so I'm glad that she made me stick it out. Knowing how much faith matters to Jay and then learning how much faith matters to the two other men in the group, it really makes a lot of sense on song choices and what they chose to write as a group, knowing their background and their belief and their relationship with God. And I absolutely love it. And I think that's another reason why so many people have this admiration for Rascal Flats. It really does feel like you are in the middle of a worship sometimes when you're listening to Rascal Flats. And knowing Jay's background with Christian music and being in a Christian music duo, I loved the transition and how I really do believe organically they really brought God into their music. And that is so beautiful. You said, like, you still listen to country music, but you went from the Christian world to the country world. Why country music? Well, country music always spoke to me. My mom and dad were both country music lovers, and I grew up on a steady diet of bluegrass from my grandpa and country from my dad mainly and my mom. So I always loved the honesty in country music. It always hit me a little differently than pop music did. I'm a child of the 80s, so I love pop and Mm -hmm. rock music too, but country music always had this 
honesty that that was palpable that was different than any other genre and the the lyrics were so much more deep and meaningful yes. to me than than just pop music which has its place too but I was more moved by country music and the lyrics in country music than anything else. Well, I think it has probably a closer tie to Christian music. Yeah, um, I think they're distant cousins for mm-hmm. sure. Writing Christian music versus writing country music, which one do you prefer? Well, I like them both. I love the feeling that I get when I'm writing a Christian song and knowing that I'm hopefully going to make some people examine something about their life and their need for a savior Mm -hmm. really kind of lights me up a little bit because we're all broken and we all need hope and we all deal with the same shit, Mm -hmm. which just how we all get to Mm -hmm. our answers is a little bit different. So I love writing a Christian lyric that brings somebody closer to realizing their need for a savior. That, That really lights me up. Country music, the canvas is a little bit broader, right? So you get to write about other things, real life. Sometimes country music can be a little too honest for what the Christian people are ready to hear. Absolutely. And I love that you're able to talk about real life issues in country music and really deal with love and loss and pain and hurt and in different ways. So, so far since the 1990s, since you've been here in Nashville, what would you say is one moment that you'd say you are most proud of? I think the thing that I always say that I'm most proud of, there's so many milestones we were able to achieve and so many wonderful awards and accolades we were able to achieve as Rascal Flats. But my proudest moment was when they rechristened the surgery center at Vanderbilt, the Rascal Flats Surgery Center Mm. uh, at the Children's Hospital over there. We've had a wonderful partnership with them for nearly 20 years now, and we're able to give them through donations, five or six million dollars. I forget how much it is, but over the years, we've taken proceeds from our concerts and even have done some at Bridgestone where all the proceeds have gone to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. But my proudest legacy that I'll leave behind long after I'm gone from this earth is that Rascal Flat Surgery Center. And it means even more to me now that I have my own kids. Yeah. At the time, I didn't really understand the impact because I didn't have kids and just seemed like a nice thing to do to give back and pay the blessing forward. But when you see those kids now, and I put my kids' faces on some of those kids that are dealing with issues that you can't even imagine. Mm-mm. And sometimes they're the strong one. They're carrying the parents and dragging them along through it because the parents can't be strong enough to deal emotionally with what their child is facing and insurmountable odds sometimes. And it's just amazing to watch the people work over there. And I really believe with all my heart that they're doing God's work and they're angels walking the earth over there. It's remarkable to watch. And I've really loved our partnership and our ties to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital has been one of the most rewarding things in our entire career. On the other side of the coin, what would you say since being here is a moment that would be one of your biggest regrets? Hmm. I know we're not supposed to have those, right? But I've got so many, it's hard to pick just (laughs) one. I think overall, when I look at regrets, like I don't really have too many because I think that you grow and you're stronger from the mistakes that you make. But I think one of the regrets that I have is not enjoying the ride more with Rascal Flats. I think that it went by in such a blur and we were going at such a dizzying rate that sometimes for me, I don't think I took enough deep breaths and soaked it all in and was able to really appreciate it for what it was at the time. Okay. And now 
not having it any longer and us not being together and touring, I realize more and more now how special it really was and how blessed we were for so long to be able to do what we were able to do. So long. How long was that again? How many years? Well, it's probably all said and done over 21 years, maybe 22 years together. 20 on the road really, really hard and having a record deal. We got signed at the end of 99. So we stopped touring in 2020. So 20 years of hard touring and then a couple of years together playing in clubs and kind of honing our craft. Yeah. I know you speak very openly about your faith. It's like a big thing that I feel like I noticed reading articles about you, watching interviews. How would you say your relationship with God has changed since the beginning of your career to now? I think it's more real now than it has ever been. I think when you're a kid and you're raised in church, you believe things because your parents tell you or you hear the preacher say it and you just take it for granted. And then when I went through those dark years here in Nashville, I was trying to figure out what was next for me and trying to figure my life out. I really deconstructed my faith and just started with the basic premise of, do I believe that there's a God? Do I believe that God sent his only son to die for me and shed his blood to cover my sins? Mm -hmm. I mean, right down to its basic brass tacks principles, and then sort of started to build from there to make sure that what I believed was because I really believed it, not because it was indoctrinated in me. Yeah. So I think my faith now, while I'm not perfect by any means and will never claim to be, is more authentic now than it was maybe even when I had my Christian deal. I think there are things about it now that are more real to me. And I sort of view more sacredly than I did before. That's a good way to put it. You said you had moments where you started... You got heavy really quickly. <laughs> they say that about me. Hang out you and... know, what's funny is... Now I'm having to think. And I'm, I'm telling you to... right now... That it's not as bad as when I interviewed Tom Douglas. He looked over first question and he looks over at our dear friend Robert here and goes, I don't know if I regret coming here or not. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't because of the cats. All right. I get it. But, you know, we just got to get right to the point. I understand. We've got a limited amount of time. We got to get to the good stuff. We can hang out here for five hours like <laughs> Jeffrey Steele. We can do that, too. Okay, so you know how you said you've fallen away from your faith for a moment. You had some dark years. Yeah. So how would you say you found your way back? Well, I don't think I was ever completely gone. I never lost my faith or there were definitely dark times and doubts, but sure. I think we all go we through all those go times. Through I think my foundation was strong enough to sort of always keep me centered, even in my darkest moments, even in those days that I would wake up and look at myself in the mirror and, and not like looking at who was looking back at me. I mean, yeah. even through those times, I would go, all right, I know better than to do some of the things that I'm doing. And I know how to find my way back. I just don't know if I'm ready to get back there yet. Mm -hmm. So it was a process of, I think I had to go through those things to be molded into who he was shaping me to be eventually. Yeah. And I still feel like it's a process. I learn something new every day and I'm still open to the fact that I haven't got it all figured out yet. And I think that as long as we're willing to be an empty vessel and let him speak into our lives and let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. I, I normally don't talk this much about over-spiritualizing everything, but I do believe it's very important. I believe that we live in a world right now of a whole bunch of people that are looking in all the wrong places mm -hmm. for the answer. I was going to talk about that. And so I don't really browbeat people over the head with the gospel, but I do believe it's a very important ingredient in finding peace and joy and happiness I agree. in your life. And so for me, I just 
try to always be open to whatever it is he has for me next. Mm -hmm. And also to be open for him to continue to make me into the person he wants me to be, stripping me of any anger or bitterness or resentments that I hold on to. It's a real process. And I don't think we ever, even at the end of our lives, get to a point to where we're all fixed and Mm -hmm. everything's okay. I think it's a lifelong process to figure it out. Of course. So obviously you understand the miracle of God's power. What would you say is a moment in your life where you really think that God showed up? Well, I wrote a book called Shotgun Angels. It's available right now on Amazon that talks about all those moments in my life where they were people showing up or things happening to me at times in my life where I desperately needed an ounce of hope or I needed a thread of encouragement to keep moving forward. But one of my favorite memories that comes to mind is I had my apartment broken into and my bases and my gear, my keyboards, everything was stolen. I just run out to grab a bite of lunch and I came back and everything was gone. So I had nothing to make a living with. I'd just gotten a gig with Shelly Wright, a country artist in Mm -hmm. town, and I was going to be playing keyboards with her. And I had no keyboard to take on the road or even learn the material on. I'd been going to Corner Music here in 12th South for years. Mm -hmm. It's now moved, but it was down here on 12th Avenue forever. And there's a guy in there named JD, who I believe was a manager and may have been part owner. I'm not exactly sure about that point. But JD knew me. He had always seen me in there. I went into the music store. I had nothing. I had maybe a couple hundred dollars to my name in my bank account. And I told him my story. I said, I just got a gig, but I have nothing to make a living with. I was very emotional. I'm like, everything has just been stolen. And this guy was like, why don't you go back there, pick out what you need to do your gig with. Whatever you can put down, put it down and pay me a little bit out of your paycheck each week so you can get back on your feet and start back to work. If that's not a God thing, I don't know what is it. No credit check because it wouldn't have turned out great. I'm here (laughs) to tell you, I was bouncing checks to Domino's back then just to eat. So things like that are real moments that I know God had me in his hand and was looking out for me. And people like that he used to bless me and to touch me and to get me to where I needed to be. And that happened many times in my life. I can point back to so many instances like that and go, that was a God thing. And that was a God thing. And that was a God thing because I would not, I literally say this every time and I believe it with all my heart and it makes me emotional, but I would not be here if it weren't for his intervention on many occasions. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you earlier were just mentioning about kind of like in today's world, sometimes it feels like there is a war on the Christian faith today. Yeah, there is. There definitely is. And you see it start to pop up even in music. And it's so sad that it's kind of feeling it's almost related to political sides, which should have nothing to do with that. So it's like I feel now you speak out. And that's why I like to give the platform for people who ever want to speak about their faith, because I think it's really important. And I think there's somebody out there that always needs to hear it. Yeah. But now it's like if you speak out having a strong background of faith that it turns into that's a political side. Yeah. Which is sad to say. In country music, I think a lot of people come to hear That's why I even love pieces of Rascal Flatts' music, which I will get to. God is mentioned a lot in Rascal Flatts' music. Yeah, that was intentional. I mean, we were three guys that loved country music that happened to be believers. We didn't feel like it was our job to go out and preach to people, but we wanted to 
talk about our faith because it was very important to us. And one of the greatest things that was ever said to us, we had a prominent pastor show up at one of our shows one time in Houston. And he said, I love a Rascal Flatts show because people are out there and they're partying, they're drinking beer and they're having a great time and they're singing to the top of their lungs, summer nights and life is a highway and all these great party songs. And then you guys sneak the gospel in. And when they leave a Rascal Flatts show, most of them, it probably doesn't even dawn on them that they've left there having heard the good news of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful thing. Wonderful. And so I didn't really think about it in those terms until he mentioned that. And then I was like, it is pretty cool that we can, in one night, go through all the gamut of what we love about life and celebrate life and party with a bunch of people there that are like-minded, but also talk about something that's very important to the foundation of all of us. And that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing to be exposed to all of that in one show. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, you did. Yeah. You did. I was actually on the phone with a producer of my podcast, and I was saying that you guys are one of the few bands that actually had songs for your fans. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about you guys as a band and why you guys had the longevity of a group. Because you, it was very apparent to me as a fan how much respect you had for your fans. Oh, and I appreciate that. I don't know very many other bands or even artists that have songs that are dedicated to their fans specifically. And you guys did. I wrote that, by the way. Tell me about uh, writing that. I, I was like sitting in the room with Neil Thrasher and Wendell Mobley, who I wrote it with. I was like, you know, I, every night I see these people show up and put down their hard-earned money to buy tickets to see us. And I'm overwhelmed with gratitude because I know we don't have anything without them showing up. Or buying our records or requesting our records or weathering the rain sometimes to stand out there and listen to us. And I want to say something to them to thank them for Mm -hmm. allowing us to live incredibly blessed lives. They're responsible for all of this. And so we wrote that song as a ode to the fans and a giant thank you note to them for all of the years we've been able to enjoy doing what we're doing. Well, it definitely didn't go unnoticed because, again, you guys are one of the few people that have done that. And I think it shows a a wonderful testament to your respect to the fans, which I think is really important. So something that I didn't say to Jay in the interview, because we ended up talking about, you know, do you think that Rascal Flatts had already run its course? Were you bored? All those things. And the reason why I asked those questions was because at their Vegas show, my sister and I had gifted my dad a behind-the-scenes experience, you know, backstage, where it was just going to be them three singing to, I think, a very select small group of people, and we got to ask them questions and various things like that, which was really cool for me because I had just started really working in country music. I hadn't moved to Nashville yet, but Rascal Flatts was, was a big, big deal for me. And I do remember maybe 2016. Forgive me if that's off by a year or two. It didn't feel like they were fully invested. Now, mind you, this could be just a bad day. Someone's tired. Someone isn't feeling well. There are various reasons why this could happen. That's why I do not try to hold a lot of weight in these words when I say this about people when I meet them for the first time. Because sitting down with Jay was a delight. Back at the Vegas show, you could just tell that maybe they weren't as excited to be doing this as maybe they once were. They started it like in 1998, 1999, and went to 2021. That's a long time to be together as a group. You're going to probably butt heads. Rascal Flatts is an incredible group. 
They put out incredible music. They did their job. Things are going to happen along the way, and sometimes I think things can just be salacious gossip versus things that should just remain between the three of them. So whatever was going on in an experience that I potentially had, I try not to hold against artists later, and I let their work speak for themselves. I suggest for everyone who's listening to do the same. If you've potentially had maybe a off experience with an artist or something, mind you, things happen, right? Like I had a very bad experience once with Ashton Kutcher. I know many other people who have met Ashton Kutcher and they absolutely adored him. So I just kind of think that we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. I thought it was really important to mention this while talking to you guys today because it's so easy to think in this business with really big artists such as Rascal Flatts that they're just supposed to remain perfect all of the time. It's not going to happen. They're human beings. Now, mind you, don't get me wrong. There are some times when people are just downright mean. And that's sometimes just not an excuse. This is your job. And that's like showing up to any job and you just having a bad attitude. This isn't the experience I had. Really important to know that when you meet somebody, it might not always be perfect. And I got to sit down with Jay, you know, on my couch, and I had an incredible experience, and I got to learn a lot about Rascal Flats and how they got started. And I hope that you guys find this interesting because I had no idea the beginning of Rascal Flats. Taking it back a little bit, how did Rascal Flats get started? I was here in Nashville working with Shelly Wright. I'd had that gig for a few months, and my cousin Gary called me from Ohio and said he'd been winning some karaoke contests. I'm sure he was. <laughs> well, you can imagine what I thought, though. Without having heard him sing ever, you can imagine what I was thinking when he told me that. And I immediately called my mom, and I was like, Gary called me and told me he's been winning some karaoke contests <laughs> and wants to sing for me. I said, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to have to tell my cousin he's awful. And she was like, "Oh gosh, I think you should give him a shot. Let him come down there and sing for you and stay the weekend. And so he stopped at my apartment on his way down to Florida on vacation. And needless to say, the first song he sang for me was One Last Cry. I sat down at the piano. And Brian McKnight. Oh, big Brian McKnight fan. Yeah, and he was too. <laughs> and this guy opened his mouth and I was just like, this is an otherworldly voice. Like, yes. this is something that you don't experience every day. And he was clearly blessed with a God-given ability to sing. And this is no knock toward Gary at all, but he's not really musical. Like he doesn't know what a measure is, or if you told him this song is in 6-8, or this song is a waltz, or this song is, he wouldn't know what you're talking about. He can just he, sing. He just has a dose of like the touch of God on him. And so he was naturally gifted. And I was just like, man, I don't think you're ever gonna do what you wanna do if you stay in Ohio. It's never going to find you there. And he'd been out to L.A. a couple of times. He was friends with Jamie Foxx, and he'd been talking to some folks out there about a pop deal, about an R&B deal, because he could do it all. But at the heart of who he was, he grew up much like I did. And our mothers were very close growing up, and we're country people. My, my folks migrated from West Virginia and Kentucky to get there, so we were raised on country music. And at the heart of who he was, he loved country music, and so... He ended up moving to town, living on my couch in my little one-bedroom apartment in Bellevue. We started going downtown and signing up on the sign-up sheet to get up to sing. Gary didn't play an instrument, so every time he got up, I would play with him and I'd sing with him. 
And so it just sort of started evolving from there. We started singing together a bunch. Finally, one night we ended up at the Fiddle and Steel Guitar Bar and the owner there said, if you guys will play Monday and Tuesdays, I'll knock down the other side of the wall here and lease the rest of the place out and build a stage and let you guys hire a full band. Mm. We were playing in there as a duo, just he and I, piano. And so we put together a full band. I started using some of the guys in Shelley Wright's band that I'd hired. And because our, it was convenient, our schedules were the same and they could always play when we could. So to make a long story short, the guy that had been playing guitar got sick one night and couldn't show up. And I knew Joe Don because I had hired him in Shelley Wright's band. Okay. We were really great friends and I'd been telling him about Gary. And so I called him and said, why don't you come fill in tonight? Gary was pissed. He was like, I don't know this guy. He's not going to know anything that we do. <laughs> and if it sucks, I'm going to leave. And I'm like, you're not going to leave me here by myself to play till two o'clock in the Jeez, morning. Gary. <laughs> and so we started the first song, which was Church on the Cumberland Road by Shenandoah. And we hit that course and we had a buzz in our blend that was, I think, stopped all of us in our tracks. We knew we had lightning in a bottle immediately. I regretted the phone call I had to make the next day to the other the guitar other guy tell him he was not welcome back he was permanently replaced so that's how we started and about six months later we got a record deal wow that's pretty fast it was fast but we had a very loyal fast growing fan base that yeah. was coming to seek us out downtown wherever we would play we started playing different spots and we would pack the joints out and people would it was weird because you would hear us do a Merle Haggard song with Gary's voice that was very R&B tinged. And I don't think people had ever heard anything like that before. Mm -hmm. So they would see these three guys doing this. And, you know, what was really unique for us back then is we pretty much all sang equal parts lead back then, too. Okay. So we switched around a lot. I did a lot of the material in the clubs because I just had been doing it longer and had a bigger catalog of all different kinds of songs. So Gary would sing tenor with me and Jodon would sing the middle and we'd switch around and pass it back and forth. And obviously Gary was the standout vocalist, but we all sang, mm -hmm. uh, sang a whole lot more back then, you know, and switched off. I've been to, I think, one of every show of Rascal Flatts on every tour. And I feel like maybe more towards the last few tours, you sang way more towards the end. Yeah, we started to do more and more of that, you know, and Gary's job was so taxing singing in the clouds all night long. We tried to build in little breaks for him, and it gave us all a chance to sort of showcase our unique voices. But I think one of the things at the end of the day that made Flat successful is we realized what our strengths were, and we stuck to them. And Gary was clearly the standout vocalist and an amazing singer, so it was not a hard decision to let him carry the bulk <laughs> of the the lead singing. And I really loved more the production side and the arranging side. And I put most of the tours together and most of the shows together. And I really loved that part of it. Yeah. And it's helped me now too at Red Street with new artists to sort of help them figure out the pacing of shows and yep. put together set lists and transitions and the fact that 15 seconds can feel like an eternity of silence. It sure can. And so I hate watching someone set even if it's 20 minutes and being a nervous wreck for them because it's like oh my god get to the next song <laughs> please or shut up don't go off on a tangent so i love the really the nuts and bolts of putting together a really tight show so when it comes to the writing side what is your favorite song that you were a co-writer on that was released with rascal flats i wrote a song with the guys on the bus one night 
we had a long bus ride. And I really am proud of that song because it's just the three of us. And it was released off the Me and My Gang record. I think it was the fourth single off there called Winner at a Losing Game. Okay. And I remember we got finished with the show. It was about 1130. We were sitting around on the bus, having a couple of beers, winding down after the show. And I had this intro and I had the first verse, but I didn't have a hook for it. And we stayed up till about 3.30 or 4 in the morning until we finally landed the course on if, so if love is really forever, then I'm a winner in a losing game. And it just like, we had this moment where we're like, oh my God, that's the greatest thing ever. Of course, you always think that at four in the morning and then you (laughs) listen to it the next day and nine times out of 10, you go, that song's a piece of crap. But thankfully, this song was great. And I loved it because it was the first song that the three of us had written and only the three of us. And it ended up being a single. And it's one of my favorite things we've ever done together. What would you say is your favorite Rascal Flatts song that you were not a writer on? God bless the broken road without question. It's one of the best lyrics and melodies I've ever heard in my life. And we almost didn't cut it. I was cleaning out my car and I had CDs just piled up in the back seat and I was sticking them in to listen to what was on them before I threw them away. And I put a CD in and it had Marcus Hummins demo on there of Broken Road. And my then fiance, now wife, she was like, who's that? I said, that's Marcus Hummin. That's a song that he pitched to us for our first record. And she said, why didn't you cut that song? I don't know. We just just got better songs in and she said well you're stupid if you don't cut that song ah and we were on our third record by then and she never gives opinions about music in fact i don't even really think she cares about what i do (laughs) but this one time she was very assertive and she said that is one of the best songs i've ever heard in my life and y'all are crazy if you don't cut that song so i went back into the office and we were listening through songs for our third record And I said, you know, I think we missed one, maybe. And listen to it again. I think Gary was the first one to go, why in the world did we not cut that song? And why would we not cut it? Mm -hmm. So we cut it on our third record, and it's one of the best moves we ever made. I would say so. Yeah. I found it so inspiring to hear that Jay was actually a co-writer on Here's to You. And that was by happy accident that I even talked about a song to the fans. I didn't know that that was one of the songs that Jay co-wrote for Rascal Flats, And so that was just really natural for me to bring up the fact that how cool that they have a song that is specifically for their fans. I remember hearing that song almost at every tour since that song was released. And it's just a really smart choice to have a song for the genuine gratefulness to your fans. I think this is another testament of why Rascal Flats had the career they had. Every show I was at for live, I felt like they really cared about their fans. So if you've ever seen them live and you felt that same feeling, I think that that was something that they really honed in on and they focused on. What would you say is a song that you thought should have been a Rascal Flatts single but wasn't? All the ones that I've written. (laughs) (laughs) No, When we decided to release Fast Cars and Freedom, which Mm. was a wonderful single, I love it, but it was neck and neck between Here's to You and Fast Cars and Freedom. And I felt like very strongly like I wanted Here's to You to be out, not because I had written it, but because it 
was such a great message to our fans that I really wanted them to hear. Well, it really goes over so well on the tour, too, yeah. obviously. Cause... And believe it or not, everybody sings it, but it was never a single. Mm-hmm. It's the strangest mm-hmm. thing. So that's probably the one that I feel like I really wish would have been a single that I've written. Did you want to be a part of more of the writing for Rascal Flats? I feel like I was a pretty good part of the writing. You always want to write more. I turned in a lot of songs. And not because of any malicious intent. Gary ended up having more singles that he had written, but I think that's by nature going to happen when you're the singer and you deliver something a certain way. I could turn in a great song, but he's going to sing a song that I've written and interpret that differently than a song that Mm -hmm. he's written that's in his soul. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was necessarily one of those things like, oh, he's trying to get all the singles and write all the songs. I think it was by nature because he was the singer delivering those songs that were in his soul. It ended up being more of his songs that were released as singles. I had a bunch of cuts on our records, but less singles. So For outside cuts, how did you guys choose? Was it really a collaborative situation or was there times where like Gary chose more because he was the one singing them more? No, no, we were all three on the same page 98% of the time. We would hear a song and we'd go, that's a smash. We've got to cut it. I think that's a testament to one of the reasons why we had the longevity that we did. Absolutely, We were in the lockstep when it came to music. And if it beat out a song that we had written, so be it. If it was a better song, we were adamant about cutting the best songs we could get our hands on. All right. You got to tell me what's a song you guys had a creative difference on. And you guys did it anyway. Oh, man. It's hard to say now. Because there is a song like maybe on tour where you guys were like not looking forward to performing it. We had a number one that Jeffrey Steele wrote. We only did it one time live and it went over horribly. So we never did it again. And it was a number one song. Really? Yeah. It wasn't one of the popular ones. It was number one for one week and sort of went away. There were no creative differences there. It was surprisingly a number one song that did not translate well live. But I'll tell you one that I never wanted to cut. and really always was um it means a lot to a lot of people too i'm gonna get so much hate mail oh it's okay we're not gonna get skin was really tough because it dealt with cancer and my family was heavily affected by cancer and it was just a subject matter that i I didn't feel comfortable like getting involved with and i didn't want to be the poster child for the cancer song and we had doug on the show it means a lot to a lot of people and i get it it's helped so many people through so many difficult circumstances but that's one song that Gary and Joe don't really believed in. They wanted to cut that I was adamantly like, I don't like that song. I don't want to cut it. I don't want to be associated with it. Now, I definitely understand and appreciate that it has touched a lot of our fans out there and I'm happy to do it because it does. <laughs> but it's one of the songs that we had a mild disagreement on. Do you think you guys will ever get back together? Do you think you guys will ever get back together? (laughs) I don't ever say never because life continually surprises me. But the further we get away from it, the harder it is to bring it back together. And we're all on different pages right now. Gary's pursuing a solo path and I'm running Red Street Records, which I really love. And it's been wonderful to kind of do something very different in the business instead of performing all the time Mm -hmm. like I have most of my adult life. And Jodon and I remain really close because our kids are similar ages and go to school together. So we're still in touch. And I think that I continue to hold out hope that the day will come that 
we're able to give it its proper goodbye. Well, that's what I was going to say, at least that one more tour, I feel right? like we kind of ro- were robbed of that a little bit. And so for me, it would be really nice to think optimistically that we could put it back together again someday. But we're three years plus removed from our last show now. And that makes me sad, too, because yeah. when we did our last show, we didn't realize it was, it was our your last show. show. Yeah. COVID was just starting to pop off and we were in Canada and everybody was just concerned about getting back home. Because the world was starting to shut down. Yeah. We were like, we got to get out of here. We got to get back home to our families. We were so f- hyper-focused on getting back home that it didn't dawn on any of us that it was our last night on stage together. It makes me really sad to think about that. Absolutely. So I would love, I feel very angry about the fact that I didn't get to look across the stage at Gary and Joe Don one last time and feel the gratitude and appreciation for what we're able to do together when we are at our best and firing mm-hmm. on all cylinders. There's nothing like that feeling in the world. Yeah. And there's no one in my life I could have imagined doing it with but those two guys. And it makes me sad to think that I didn't get to honor that in the way that we all should have mm-hmm. gotten the chance to. So I would love to think that there's a world someday where we're able to do it again, but I don't know. Well, it's funny because before we started recording, I was telling you how much impact I feel like you guys as a band still have on country music and with fans. I was doing a lot of research on Spotify, just doing comparison of numbers. And it's incredible that your monthly listeners are more than Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw. Obviously big artists because it shows the impact you guys still have. I think that with Gary's voice and you guys, the sound obviously had a little bit of pop influence. Mm -hmm. It was very uplifting. It was almost a a younger sound. And I think it mesh it, it still impacts generations before they even knew who Rascal Flatts. It was. had a younger sound because we were younger. Yeah. <laughs> now we're old. Yeah, we were that was intentional. We wanted to take all the best of our influences from the eighties. And I was a huge Chicago fan, so I loved power ballads and I loved everything David mm-hmm. Foster did. So all of our ballads that you listen to have that influence in them, you know, from I Melt to Stan to Here Comes Goodbye. You could put those on Chicago 17 and they, they would have yeah. been huge. So we tried to take all of our influences and obviously Gary's voice that was very R&B and gospel influenced. We tried to throw it all in the pot and sort of make our own musical stew that had all of those elements in it. And I'm proud that we were able to do something different in country music that hadn't necessarily been done before. And when I listen to bands like, and I don't mean this because I'm dear friends with these guys. I know. When I listen to Dan and Shay, I'm thrilled and I'm proud that they saw something in us that inspired them to do what they're doing right now. 100%. It makes me very proud of what we were able to do. And so I'm glad we've at least somehow left a little bit of our mark behind. Yeah. Absolutely, because I was going to bring them up and say that your guys' sound really did pave the way for a lot of people to be able to do what they do in country music. Yeah, not in an arrogant way, but I think so, too. I think we we opened some doors that were locked tighter before we got there and let people sort of wander over into the pop world a little bit more than they would have before we got there. At any point in time before you knew it was the end? Did you ever feel like you guys were running your course? Yeah. I think 10 years in, we reassessed what we wanted to do because 
we were at this crossroads of Lyric Street had shut down. We were changing management and we sat down and had a long talk. I'm like, maybe this is it. Maybe 10 years is enough and people have had enough Rascal Flats. And I know we weren't everybody's cup of tea, but we always got derided as this overly happy, overly sappy pop. Like, And so you get tired of hearing that crap every once in a while. And so we all sat down and we were like, have we done and said enough? And we all felt like we had more in the tank and more to give creatively. So we stuck it out another 10 years. But the last few years, the climate and the tides started to shift in country mm-hmm. music. And it always does. And we talked about it before we started, but Pendulum always swings back. And so sometimes it's more pop. Sometimes it's more sure. country. Sometimes we got bro country and sometimes we got hat acts mm-hmm. and sometimes we got. So it all, there's room for all of it. There is. And I just, I feel like we realized really quickly that we'd build a wonderful touring business and that whether or not we were on the radio with a current single, people were still going to come hear the songs that they love. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you were getting bored with tour? Well, it, you, touring is like every year, you, it's like dog years. Every year you spend on the road, it takes seven off your life. It's really hard to tour and it, yeah. and it, it gets old being away from home, missing out on your kids' events and ball games and birthdays and it's a lot but also man it beats having a real job you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it was wonderful to be able to do what i loved for so many years at such a high level yeah and i feel blessed about having been able to live through some amazing times with those guys and share share things that we only the three of us can can share Not only with the song that you did for the fans, here's to you, but I think you guys also had an immense amount of respect for the outside cuts, the songwriters. Oh, yeah. I know you guys did an event for like the 75 songwriters that helped basically mold your guys' career and your sound and all of that. And I wonder why other artists, and maybe you can have like a good opinion on this, why other artists don't tip the hat more to the... um, immense amount of work that the songwriters do for artists like Rascal Flatts. Other artists I know that did this publicly was Garth Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't speak for other artists. I can just say I feel like we live in a climate now where it's harder for songwriters that are just songwriters to get songs cut because so many artists see the value in having their own songs cut and played. Sometimes the songs are worse. Uh, I know. But I don't, I think that in a lot of ways, our standards have been lowered some. And it sure have. we haven't kept the bar as high as it should be. Yeah. And so more crap gets through the filter now than should. And I've always loved great songs. You guys had a talent at finding them. We had a really great run of finding the kinds of songs that leave a lasting impact on yes. people. And I wish that there were more younger artists that would see the value in building a long career than worrying about the fact that their EP has four songs that they've written on it instead of zero. And if they were great songs, they'd have a longer career. And that's the truth of it. More impactful songs create longer careers. And we were smart enough, thank God, in the beginning to know that we had to cut great songs. Yes. That's the one thing I can hang my hat on with those two guys is that we made a commitment to each other to cut the best songs. And you did. And to use 
the talent wealth that's here in this town and draw from it as often as we could. You see the names over and over again on some of your guys' albums, like yeah. Jeffrey Steele, like Neil Thrasher. Do you have relationships with these people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Neil Thrasher and Wendell Mobley are dear friends mm-hmm. of mine. Brett James is a dear friend of mine. Gosh, Caitlin Smith. I still write with these people. We still hang out. And I, it's just like they're friends. Before they're songwriters or co-writers, they were, they're friends. Yeah. So, yeah, Jeffrey Steele, we've written a bunch together. I love Jeffrey, you know, and so... I feel like the friendships are the reasons, too, that they kept writing for us and kept trying to bring us the best that they had because they knew that it was more than just a songwriter relationship. It was a friendship, too. Mm-hmm. At what point do you think you realized as Rascal Flats that you didn't just make it, but you guys were kind of superstars? I never really considered us to be superstars because... I think it's easier to feel like a superstar if you're a solo act. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if Kenny Chesney walks in the Green <laughs> Hills Mall, people are going to know it's Kenny Chesney, right? Sure. If Jada Marcus walks through the Green Hills Mall <laughs> without Gary and Jodon, nobody gives a rip. <laughs> they don't even realize it. You know what I'm saying? So there's this feeling of you could sell millions of records and have all kinds of number ones and I can spend a week out on the road in front of 60,000 people. But when I came back home and I was walking through the supermarket, nobody would stop me and go, oh my God, you're that guy in Rascal Flat." So there's something very humbling about being in a band and needing the other guys to have that identity with. So I never really felt like a superstar. Okay, at what point did Rascal Flats feel like a superstar? I just, I think that it dawned on me we had done something special in 2006 when we were at the Grammys. I never will forget, Gary leaned over to me and said, look at that front row over there. There's Beyonce, there's Jay-Z, there's Elton John, there's Lady Gaga. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. And Madonna was walking in and we're sitting over off kind of the side, second row. And he said, you know what's cool about tonight? And I said, what? He goes, we've sold more records than anybody in this room this year. Wow. So that was what hurts the most. That was you know, oh, that album. Yeah, that my was, wish. That was the life changing album, wasn't it, it? It was. It started with Broken Road on the album before, mm-hmm. and it sort of just kept going. And then what hurts the most was the first single, Life is a Highway Hit after that. And then My Wish. Yeah. And then Stand. And we, we were in the sweet spot. We were in the nexus. We were right there. And yeah. the, every artist goes through this that's had some degree of success where you kind of get a sweet spot of no matter what you put out, it's going to get played and it's going to find its way to the top of the charts. Sure. So the year 2006, we sold more records than anybody in the world. And for a country band to be able to say that was huge. huge. And that is the time, the first time, because we've been working so hard and so long. That was the time that I stopped and I went, wow, we've really done something here. We've been able to do something in music that's pretty incredible and pretty rare yeah and i don't know i'd like to know but i don't know if any country band has done that since the band or the act to sell the most records that is a country band for an entire year pretty cool yeah that's really cool what do you think the legacy is that you guys have left behind some lady came through a meet and greet line one time and said something that was awesome to me i never will forget it she said i've got my daughter here now who has her kid that she's bringing so there's three generations of flats fans here and she said and the reason for that is you've been the soundtrack to our lives she graduated to my wish 
We've taken road trips and family vacations to Life is a Highway. We go out on the lake and we sing Summer Nights. She walked down the aisle to Broken Road. You've literally marked every monumental moment in our lives with one of your songs. And it really choked me up. I was like, this is the most incredible thing you can hope for as an artist is to have your music impact people's lives that way. And to mean that much to them that they mark a moment in their lives with something that you've put out. You know, actually, for my high school graduation, I tried out to sing and I chose my wish. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, what got chosen, which I thought was really bizarre, in my opinion, I actually talked to Dee Vincent about this when I had him on the podcast. The guy who won saying I'm moving on. And I got to be honest with you, that's a real depressing song for a graduation (laughs) song. (laughs) It is for sure. Dee Vincent actually tried to tell me, though, that apparently it was rated a top graduation song. I said, no, how? Over my wish? There's no way. You got to be kidding. It's a song me. about a divorce. It's a it's a it's a real downer. Okay? It <laughs> it's, is. it's a great song. It is a great song. It's not the way I would send off a senior class. No, but you know, some, somebody needs to study the lyrics a little, a little bit harder. Yeah. yeah, I feel like our whole class kind of got a little more quiet. No one was really celebrating in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I was a little irritated by that song, but I do like it, so it's fine. But I was able to tell D. Vincent that irritated me. That's the single song that turned our career around. Yeah, and I've heard you tell a story about you in the radio station, right, when someone called in. Yeah, but that song that song sold 500,000 records by itself for us. We had Praying for Daylight, Everyday Love, and While You Loved Me came out, and they did okay. We still had a gold record, but when Jerry House's wife said, if you don't play that song in the morning, I'm going to divorce you, she was, of course, kidding, but he was on the radio, and he was like, my wife threatened me last night that if I didn't play this, I don't know. Um, it wasn't going to be a single, right? No, it was never going to be a single. And he played it on the radio and the phones lit up. Yeah. And it just sort of took on this organic life of its own and became our biggest single up to that point. That's really incredible. Really cool. And yeah, tell the story really quickly about the phone call that came in. Well, it was just a guy that was driving his truck and had been contemplating suicide and gone through a bad divorce and he said, I heard that song on the radio and I pulled my truck over and I just started crying. And I was like, "That I, that's not what I need to do. I need to keep moving forward and I need to, you know, really, really mm-hmm. impactful, very emotional. What do you still want to say? I don't know. I don't know that I figured that out yet. I've been so hyper-focused on starting Red Street Records. I've been pouring myself into that the last three years particularly since we opened the country division a year ago, January. And so I've been really hyper-focused on that and doing all I can to build infrastructure, hire staff, and sign the right artists and songwriters. We also have a publishing division. But now that's sort of up and running and we've got our main pieces into place, I've been feeling the need to make some music again and be creative again for myself. And Mm -hmm. I don't have any high aspirations to have songs on the radio or any of that. But I feel like I've got music inside of me that I haven't been able to do yet Mm -hmm. because I've been in a band for so long and been a part of something that's been incredible. But I feel full again and I feel like I'm being filled up to do. And I don't even know what that music is yet. I don't know what it's going to sound like, but I feel like there's something that's bubbling up inside of me that I've got to get out. How often do you still write? I write a bunch, but I target write. If we need a single for one of our artists, I'll dig in and write something. So I write 
all the time, but it's more specific to a need. Do you like that? I do. I'm kind of old school in that way. Like back in the day when we would record a record, like when I had the Christian deal, we'd be like, we're going to cut, you know, June and July. So I'd spend January through May writing for that record, okay. knowing that I was just writing for that record and I was going to end up with six or seven cuts on it. Maybe mm -hmm. not everything makes it, but target writing was always more fun for me than just going in at 10 o'clock in the morning and writing just to write a song and hopefully it gets pitched and somebody cuts it. Back in the old days, in real rock bands, when they would go in and make records, they would write for their records and okay. they would write the best music they could and whatever they wrote ended up on their records. And that's sort of the mindset I always had. Now, I developed a great appreciation for the guys that do it every day and wake up at 10 a.m. and mm -hmm. go write. But it was never something that I really enjoyed doing, just to go in to write, just okay. to write. I love seeing the passion still with Jay for the music business. The fact that he's had this immense amount of success, let's be honest, Jay really doesn't have to do anything else in music if he doesn't want to. He's a member of Rascal Flats. I mean, hello, superstars in the country music realm. He really doesn't have to be doing this. And for him to go back to his Christian music roots and choose to start a Christian music record label, you know how genuine it actually all is. You know really where his passion lies. And I loved it. We were sitting in my living room. He's really involved with his artists who are signed to his label. He's listening to them on the phone, going over vocal comps. And that is another testament to who Jay DeMarcus is in the music business. What would you say still drives your passion to be in this business? When I hear great songs. When I hear a song come across my desk that stops me in my tracks, that blows me away. I go, that's the reason I wake up every day and do what I do for a living, because of that right there. Do you have three all-time favorite country songs? Oh, my God. He Stopped Loving Her Today? I have to be at the top of that list. It's a really good question. On the other hand, Randy Travis. Mm -hmm. And um, Behind Closed Doors, because it was one of the first songs I learned how to play on piano. And what's a song right now you're hearing from like maybe a newer artist that makes you excited again? We signed a kid named Ryan Larkins that has his first single coming out and it's called The King of Country Music. And it's one of those songs that stopped me dead in my tracks. Okay. And you won't see it coming. And it's not out yet. It's not out yet. What is a song of Rascal Flatts that taught you a big lesson? Mm. I would say I melt sort of taught me a big lesson because I freaked out over Jodon's ass being shown in the video. Which, okay, I, you know what? I saw a video about you talking about this. Yeah. So you, you were upset at the time, right? I was because they sort of didn't tell me okay. until we got to the shoot because they knew how I'd Were I you would the react. only one that didn't know? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. And so when I found out they were planning on filming that, it really upset me because of all of our backgrounds of being mama's boys and church going boys. I'm like, holy Lord, I'll never be able to go back into a Baptist church in my life once they see this. But in retrospect, compared to what's out there right now that people can consume. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That makes it look like child's play. Little Nas X is giving Satan a lap dance. Yeah. It's really a blip on the radar. So I really way overreacted on that one. And I, I guess I still wouldn't have done it, but it's okay. When it comes to writing, are you more of a lyric or a melody person? 
both come to me in different ways. Okay. Probably started out more of a melodic guy, but I will have vivid dreams of lyrics that just sort of get dropped in me that I will wake up and jot down like it's somebody else's hand. Do you ever I mean, turn it off or does it just keep no, going? No, I, I, it's always going on. Always going on. I'm hearing melodies and hooks and lyrics. Every time I go to church and the preacher gives a sermon, there's something in there that I take that I can... Nine times out of ten, he speaks in hooks, and you can yeah. take it and jot it down. What is a story that still needs to be told in a country song? You're making me think too much today. Am you I? know that? For a Tuesday? Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is you said we could potentially start to talk about it on the podcast, but I'll tell you that I actually went and wrote it because I didn't think it had been written before, is A Broken Engagement. You hear about divorce, but you don't hear about broken engagement. Yeah. Of course, Chris Stapleton wrote a song that I cut on Laura Bell Bundy, though, called Ring for Sale. That's really great. Okay, well, mine is about the ring, too. Okay, well, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe there's that. <laughs> yeah. But you should do it anyway to just therapeutically get it out there. I did, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Did you record it. it? I did. Good. I did. What would you say is your happiest experience that inspired a song? Happiest? Oh, gosh. When my wife got pregnant with our first child, I wrote a song called Baby Girl. That's really sweet. Yeah. No one's ever heard it. No one's ever heard it. No huh? one's ever heard it. I recorded it and just played it for her. And But that's kind of sweet. Yeah. And they played it at the baby shower. And then I played it for Madeline when she was old enough to like get it. And how old is Madeline now? She is now 12 years old. 12 years old. Yeah. Madeline's going to play that at her wedding one day. I hope so. She's got it. She's got to. My son, of course, is pissed that I didn't write a song for him. Mm, yeah. Well, there's still time. There is. I think his point was, you didn't do it before I came, but you did it before <laughs> she came. <laughs> what would you say is one of your saddest experiences that inspired a song? Oh, my gosh. I wrote a song that I finally dealt with a heartbreak that happened to me early in my years here in Nashville that I never really quite got over. Because it was the first one that I, you know, your first love's always different. That heartbreak hits different than the others do, you know? Absolutely. And so I finally, years later, dealt with it, sort of got it out in a song that I wrote with Neil Thrasher and Wendell Mobley that mm -hmm. was on me and my gang called To Make Her Love Me. It is a great song. Thank you. It is a great song. I'm proud of that one. And that one was about your first love. It her. was. It was about the first real does she know about all this? Long-term relationship. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she does. She. We don't care. Uh, no, she's. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she does. I haven't had a chance to tell her. What would you say about the conditions of Nashville right now in the music business? How do you feel about it? I think it's an ever-changing landscape, and it's very hard to navigate. And I think if you're a new artist starting out, it's tougher than it's ever been to rise above the noise. And you have to have exceptional songs and you have to be so tenacious and you have to have that never give up, never quit spirit that nothing, no matter how disappointing it may be that happens to you, nothing can deter you or stop you from achieving your goals because it's as crowded as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Thousands of songs are released every day to the DSPs. Yep. And it's really tough. I don't know. 
quite honestly, if I would have the stomach to be a new artist right now in today's climate, we got in sort of at the end of the golden years where yeah. it was different. People were still buying CDs. Yep. And you still had to make your way on radio. Well, to be and, on a, just an album cut was more important, I think, then. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It'd be hard to be a new artist right now. You were a part of something that tremendously was successful and paved the way for so many artists. I think the business right now is a little bit bleak. I, I just seen it change just tremendously over 10 years. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to a songwriter or an artist coming to town with it is definitely as hard as it's ever been? First of all, best advice I was ever given is don't have a plan B because you'll fall back on it. And second is what I said at the beginning, do not ever compromise on song quality. You have to cut the best songs you can get your hands on. Yep. And be patient. It doesn't happen overnight. It still takes very hard work. It still takes hitting the grind every single day. And if you're not willing to put the time in and the sweat equity in, you're probably not in the right business. You mm -hmm. know? I would play every chance I get. I would continue to hone your craft as a performer and an entertainer. Learn how to read a crowd. Learn how to follow the ebb and flow of a crowd emotionally. Learn how to take them on a ride. Learn how to be compelling. It's not easy to do, but you've got to have something you offer the world that no one has. Yes. That's the only way you make it. Yep. Be compelling enough to offer the world something they haven't seen before. How important do you think radio is to country music now? I think it's very important right now. It's still the voice to the world, I agree. to the masses. I don't think it's going away. And that's why when people say it is, I go, I just don't think so. Well, no, it's not going away. It just looks differently now. And I think that it's going to continue to change. The more we rely heavily on streaming and the more streaming continues to grow, they're both equally important. Getting on the right playlist seems to be paramount to everything else now. Yeah. Having the right believers at radio is really important. And if you can get a handful of those guys at Country Radio that are kind of the gatekeepers to really buy in and believe in what you're doing, you're going to have a better than good shot. I always ask every guest this because this podcast is about the songwriting. And I know I ask a lot about you with like Rascal Flatts because obviously that's a huge part of your career here. And But you are a songwriter. And I always ask every guest, how can we help the songwriting community? Because I seem to think that is a community that, first of all, this city is built upon. Yeah. But it's starving and it's not looking good for people who just want to be a songwriter. So how can we help the songwriter? What is something that a listener can do? That's a really good question. Right off the bat, one thing you can do is support songwriter nights in town. You can go to the listening room in Bluebird and hear songwriters that you may not have been exposed to because you hear different things at those writers nights than you're going to hear on the radio. And the depth of the talent in this town is so powerful that I love going to those still myself because I'll hear songs that I know will probably never be released to radio, right. but I'll walk away with a whole new appreciation for the craftsmanship behind them. Mm -hmm. And I think if more people took the time to do that, they would have a deeper appreciation for what the songwriters do every day. Absolutely. And you can give them money. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think they need right That's now. That's one way you can help them. Just write him a fat check. You know what? I'm going to do that this week. There you Why go. not? I like it. 
Before it's all said and done and the curtains close and you're done with this career, what is one thing that you want to accomplish that you haven't yet? Because you have accomplished a lot because you are a part of the artist portion too. What's something that you haven't accomplished that you still would like to? Man, I want to be in a Steven Spielberg film. Okay. About that. Well, I did see that you said you've dabbled in acting. Mm, I have. You can go on my IMDb page and see my acting credits. <laughs> I've so you want to be in a and, Steven Spielberg movie? I've done some film and television. I really enjoy acting when I have the time. We've toured so much that I've turned down more things than I've taken on, but I really do love it. It's a different, different part of the brain, different skill set, but it's really fun to be in an environment with other actors that are really good at what they do and to yeah. be able to play off of those folks. So I'm joking about the Spielberg thing, but it'd be nice to be in like a major motion picture someday. Okay. That'd be cool. And lastly, Jay, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, gosh. Here we go with the deep questions again. I think I want to be remembered as somebody that was a loyal friend and really cared about what he did and cared about people. At the end of the day, I want to be remembered for making great music, but I would rather people remember me as a loyal person and a good friend. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on What's Mine is Yours and spending your afternoon with me. I really appreciate it. And also... I am a huge fan of Rascal Flatts. You guys are a huge reason why I even chose to be in country music. So it is an absolute honor to have you here. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Because it all starts with a song and a songwriter. Hey, thanks for listening to What's Mine Is Yours, the podcast with Tiffany Weiss. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can stay updated with all things What's Mine is Yours by visiting WMIYpodcast.com or following me on socials at Tiffany Woys and the podcast at WMIYpodcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. Produced in Los Angeles, California. Presented by Tiffany Woys in conjunction with Roundhouse Entertainment. Executive producers Tiffany Woys and The Ed Hill. Original music from Robert Shavers and Kiefer Thompson. Recorded and engineered by Robert Shavers. You can check out my music on all streaming services and a special playlist we've created for each episode with songs written by each guest only on Spotify. Thanks for listening to What's Mine is Yours.